me pone un, un épotes. Si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement, Jules Duje, with another amazing show for you this afternoon. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because we as people, too often we were labeled and overlooked. But this is no longer our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Year in and year out, Americans' top three resolutions are to exercise more, eat healthier, and lose weight. Pursuing any or all of those goals will certainly improve your health and may in turn help extend your lifespan. However, science is showing us that if you really want to increase your longevity as well as your health span, there are other simple changes anyone can make that go beyond starting new gym memberships and juice cleansings. Dr. Greg Hammer is a professor of Stanford University School of Medicine, pediatric intensive care physician, pediatric anesthesiologist, and the author of a smash, a book, Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. A member of the Stanford WellMD Initiative, Dr. Hammer is the former chair of the Physicians Wellness Task Force for the California Society of Anesthesiologists. He has been a visiting professor and lecturer on wellness at institutions worldwide and teaches GAIN to medical students, residents, and fellows at Stanford. Dr. Hammer's clinical focus is in pediatric cardiac anesthesia and pediatric critical care medicine. His research is in developmental pharmacology and immunology and has an active laboratory with multiple ongoing studies in these areas. He has published widely on topics related to pharmacology and preoperative care of children undergoing cardiac and thoriac procedures, as well as organ transplantation. Dr. Hammer is a health enthusiast and, med and meditator who utilizes a non-duality of mindfulness-based approach, including the GAIN method. He is a father, a professor, entrepreneur. Dr. Hammer, welcome to our show. Great to be with you. Quite an introduction. We still have time for an interview? We sure do, because you've done so much. I wanted people to get a little gist of all the great work that you do. Can you tell us a little bit of what you're currently working on and how things are going for you? Well, things are going well. I am actually working on a book about mindfulness related to teenagers. It's not so much for teens, but really the target audience uh, consists of parents, teachers, social workers, school counselors, and administrators, and, uh, you know, those who help raise and, and care for teenagers because they are facing um, challenges and even threats, uh, the likes of which you and I did not know when we were teenagers. Uh, I'm probably a little older than you, but I don't think that when you were a teenager, you had to face questions about whether or not you should wear a bulletproof vest to school or 
you know, about your sexuality, about whether there's going to be a planet uh, still uh, in existence when you had children and, and grandchildren, uh, the great political divide. Why is it that uh, our parents and all the other adults can't get along at the Thanksgiving table? I mean, even even more so than <laughs> than when I was a teenager, things have gotten so polarized. All the social media pressures that teens face, uh, cyberbullying, uh, issues related to their self-image. So it's a very tough time for teens. And, um, you know, for all of us, Jules, as you know, I think we're all facing uh, really unprecedented levels of stress. And that's kind of why I got into the whole domain of longevity, health and wellness. Um, it's a multifaceted arena. And uh, as an academic, I'm so interested in in all of the elements at play with regard to our health and longevity. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit, I know you've done so much in the healthcare industry. How do you get involved into this journey? Tell us a little bit about your walk to get into this work like this. Well, you know, I got into medicine because I just had a really burning curiosity, even as a child and teenager, about how things work. And, you know, I originally got interested in astronomy. And I would say to summarize what fascinated me the most, beside what I could see through my telescope standing at the edge of my driveway in December outside of Chicago when the skies were clear, uh, having my uh, face get stuck to my eyepiece because it was so cold outside. I was just fascinated by the way the nano world, or at that time, I suppose, micro world was related to the cosmos at large and, you know, how subatomic particles related to atoms and molecules and, and then larger particles and planets, stars, solar systems, galaxies, the universe, how it all seemed to be so interrelated. And when I got to university, I continue to be interested really in the sort of overarching question of interrelatedness and, you know, started meditating and hanging out with some guys who lived in an ashram. And the, the idea was that everything is interrelated. Then I, I as Yogi Berra would say, I came to a fork in the road and I took it because mm. I just decided as I got interested in human biology also that the same questions really apply. It's, it's really just miraculous to me to this day how our subcellular elements uh, function, and we can talk about that with regard to longevity, but how these little substances within our cells work together. Uh, of course, our DNA and epigenetics and our cells form tissues that form organs that really form the body as a whole and, and how our bodies interrelate. And so it's just a matter of the connectedness of all things. So that's how I got interested in first astronomy, then medicine. And when I was in medical school, I found that when I was doing my clinical rotations, I really enjoyed working with people in pediatrics. I just thought, you know, I don't have a lot of tolerance for ego and people who work with children tend not to take themselves too seriously. They have to be a little bit lighthearted with their patients. Mm -hmm. So I went into pediatrics knowing I would subspecialize and then I fell off with intensive care and went ahead and did another residency in anesthesiology, which really prepares one well for critical care medicine. Uh, and then I did fellowships in pediatric anesthesia and critical care with a lot of cardiac 
work. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And then I came to Stanford and, and slowly but surely kind of built up a research program and a laboratory. And here we are. I got, I've always been really interested in wellness, Jules, for myself, um, physical wellness, spiritual wellness, and then got involved with this organization that you referenced in the opening called WellMD, which was convened at Stanford in response to the growing epidemic of burnout in medicine. And so I joined that group and started focusing on what are the elements of burnout, what are the causes, what might be the remedies, and that got me further interested in, in resilience. We can talk about what that means. What is resilience? And then uh, was asked to give a talk and then another talk and took on a life of its own. And then I had some sabbatical time and decided to write the book. And here we are. Well, now when we talk about the new year, it is an interesting time for everyone. It's like we have a reset button. You know, it's the fresh start is the beginning of the year. You know, some of us focus on better jobs, better income, better marriages. You know, let's focus on the uh, tripod of health, sleep, exercise, and nutrition. Can you share with us how can we effectively incorporate these three into our New Year's resolution practices? Well, that's a great question. It's a huge question, of course. First of all, I would say... Uh, you mentioned the title of my book, GAIN. GAIN is an acronym for gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. So what you're really referring to in a way is the I in GAIN, which is our intention. And I'd just like to, you know, underscore the difference between goals and intentions. Goals are, I think, along the lines of New Year's resolutions, you know, this is my goal for this year. Hmm. But they're often a little bit nonspecific. And also often at arm's length. So I would like to kind of bring the focus to the present moment and talk about intentions rather than resolutions or, or longer term goals, because I think the goals, you know, are they lend themselves to, well, I can just not do that today. I'll start tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about today. Let's talk about what is what is an intention. Intention is, you know, it means a plan that you have at least a little bit of discipline enough to invoke today. And uh, for example, other than saying, well, I want to eat healthier for the new year. You know, again, that's kind of ambiguous. And it's so easy to put that off. You know, somebody, uh, you know, you go to a friend's for dinner and they offer these, you this wonderful homemade big slice of cake and so on. And okay, well, I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> We all know that that story pretty well. But, um, you know, I think the main thing is to have clear intentions. And, you know, I think we need to learn to be more present and we need to learn to be more purposeful or intentional. And you mentioned what I consider to be the three legs of the tripod that support our physical well-being, exercise, nutrition. So how can we apply our purposefulness or intention to those directives? So, you know, again, we could talk about this for hours and days, but let's maybe talk a little bit about sleep. I think these things, Jules, are really closely interrelated. Sleep, exercise, nutrition, I'll give you an example. So, you know, I've been on call, um, didn't get much sleep last night. 
I'm making rounds in the hospital, uh, especially at this time of year, there's often a delicious box of seized chocolate candies at the nursing station. I'll tell you, after you're up most of the night, nothing hits the spot like seized candy or, you know, whatever your brand of chocolate is, because you get that spike in blood sugar and yet a temporary boost in your energy. Of course, then you crash and you become even more fatigued. And so, uh, you know, I'm tired. I tend to pick up something that I know is not particularly healthy. And I'm not saying you can never have chocolate, quite, quite the reverse, but in this case, you know, that sugar gives me a bit of a rush, but then I crash and I get home and I'm too crashed to exercise. So you can see that my sleep, what I'm eating and my exercise habits are, are really pretty well linked and in many, many other ways as well. You know, of course, good, vigorous exercise promotes good sleep and good nutrition. And when we eat also may promote sleep. So again, these are very closely related. But let's talk about our intention for sleep. And, and this means tonight when we are getting ready to go to bed or thinking about it, you know, that the principles of good sleep hygiene are relatively simple. You know, basically try to darken the room, lower the temperature if you can, uh, avoid screens, and that blue light that uh, kicks in our circadian rhythms is fine in the morning. It might activate us a bit, but at night, uh, I think even with these, uh, you know, blue light blocking glasses, screens are not good right before you go to bed. Now, some people can, you know, be on their laptop until they go to sleep and just close it and they're fine. But but just in general, um, you know, our bed is made for two things and neither of them involve our screens, mm. our phones, our tablets, our laptops, even television. So avoid that proximate to the time of going to bed. If you have things on your mind, don't try to go to sleep. Get up and write them down if you want. Wait till you're ready to go to sleep before you really try to go to sleep. Turn out the light. Um, eating too late uh, is not good for healthy sleep. Alcohol, for sure, um, activates a receptor that we take advantage of in anesthesia all the time. And, you know, we render people unconscious, but they're not really sleep. If we look at their brainwave patterns, they're not physiologic sleep, right? So when you have alcohol proximate to time of sleep, mm -hmm. you may be unconscious, but you're not getting the full restorative benefit of sleep. So, you know, those are just a few things. Caffeine, caffeine, uh, you know, as a pharmacology researcher, I can tell you that, and I didn't even think about this until a few years ago, when I wasn't sleeping well and I started to really look at all of the elements of my sleep hygiene, caffeine has a half-life of five or six hours. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> it means that the blood level of caffeine and the brain concentration thereafter you get when you have that nice strong cup of Pete's or Starbucks coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a peak blood concentration maybe 45 minutes later. Let's say that's at 7.30. Well, at 12.30 or one in the afternoon, half that blood concentration is still there, right? Because the half-life is the amount of time it takes for that blood concentration to go down by 50%. So if that's five or six hours, then the coffee you drank at 7.30, half of that is still there at one o'clock. It's like having a half a cup of coffee at 12.30 or so. And then that's like having a quarter cup of coffee at, at dinner time, and then you know it's mostly gone by bedtime. But what if you have another cup of coffee at one o'clock in the afternoon because you eat lunch, you're a little bit sleepy, you have another cup of coffee? Well, now you've kind of reset things. So, 
that is like having half a cup of coffee after dinner and a quarter of a cup of coffee at, at midnight. And so I stopped having that after lunch compensatory cup of coffee and my sleep improved. So there's just a handful of things. So those are things you can do right now today to improve your sleep. Cold, dark room, um, maybe wear eye shades, uh, make a list of things that are on your mind and stop thinking about them. Avoid screen time. Don't eat too late. Don't drink alcohol uh, later in the evening. Uh, don't drink caffeine if you're sensitive to it uh, after the morning. And I, I realize some people can have a cup of coffee and go to sleep. And I'm just talking about sort of it's a bell-shaped curve, right? So I'm talking about that middle part of the bell where most of us fall. Mm. You know what? I'm going to attest that I got to work on that coffee bit myself. But nevertheless, <laughs> I... I Let's just talk a little bit more about the sleep piece. You know, according to the Census of Disease and Control, about one to three adults in the U.S. report not getting enough sleep. Now, for us, the the single parent, the marriage of having to run a household, um, it is quite difficult to make the hours long enough to kind of extend our days to get these things. But I do like that you are bringing soft recommendations with intention that kind of falls into what we'll talk later more about the game model. But when we're thinking about that intention, there's a precise move. Like when you're studying for a big test, if you have these index cards and you're reading them off the night before, they say you get to retain most of the information and you're ready for the test the next day. So it's kind of in that you know, vain, that you're able to acquire these rituals where you darken your room, make sure you don't have any screen time and make sure you're not drinking coffee or anything that is going to keep you up. You know, there are many things that we can begin to talk about, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the nutrition side, because this is another area where you, your expertise is going to be um, looked at. This new model that a lot of us are trying to fast, we're looking at intermediate fasting, how long should we fast for, what's the process and what are the hours? Can you share a little bit about that, Dr. Hammer? Sure. I mean, I, I like what you said about sleep and I fully appreciate that many people, you know, it's hard for them to get enough sleep. I, just to kind of put a bow around what you said, I think that if the data show that one third people don't get enough sleep, I think that means that the, the, the real data are being underreported because I think mm. it's a lot more than a third because I really do think we need seven and a half or, or maybe even mostly eight hours of sleep. And, you know, of course, that's really difficult for a lot of people. Others think they can do with less and make up for it on the weekend, et cetera. And that's just not the case. So we're sort of talking about what's optimal. And I realize it's not always practical, but mm -hmm. at least we can have the intention of you know, sort of following these guidelines and doing the best we can. We don't always succeed. Um, now, you were your question was about fasting. Yes. Okay. So, this is really there's really really fascinating science. Again, I'm going to get back down to the cellular level. So, the way cells function, in a manner of speaking, we can say they function one way when we have uh, plenty. In other words, when you know, we have lots of access and, and are consuming food and, you know, things are plentiful. And then they act another way when there's a lack, you know, when times lean. 
Because, for example, when there's the, uh, an abundance, cells will try to grow, multiply, make more cells, right? Because there's plenty of raw materials to do that. But when there is a lack of those raw materials, when times are lean, for example, when we're not eating and, and maybe we're hungry, but we're, we're still not eating, cells divert to another mode, which is kind of hunker down and, and work on repair right uh you know kind of reminds reminds me of the housing market you know when are we, we building more houses or it's too expensive to build so we're just fixing up the house that we have right mm -hmm. so the cells when we're fasting are focusing on repair so there 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 are mechanisms inside the cell that will fix little fragments and broken pieces of dna and our mitochondria which are the little organelles with inside the cells that produce all the energy that all of our cells need, not just to, to run, but just to function and to maintain cellular integrity so our cells don't swell or, or die. Uh, those little energy factories called mitochondria, um, they get boosted when we're in a time of lack. So again, that's part of the turning inward and, and fixing what's inside mode. So I used to think intermittent fasting was kind of fad, but it's now clear that intermittent fasting actually triggers all those reparative processes. And when you when you take animals in the laboratory, whether it's yeast or, or worms or rodents or even primates, and you you stress their metabolism by fasting them, they live longer. Mm. So for example, uh, you know, there's different ways of intermittent fasting. There is uh, the way that I embrace personally, which is I try to eat within an eight hour period every day. So I'm fasting for 16 hours. So I try not to eat um, before 11 o'clock in the morning and I try to finish eating around seven or it might be if it's eight o'clock in the evening, then noon the next day. And, you know, there's other ways of fasting. It's like uh, fasting for 24 hours once a week or a couple of times a month. Sometimes people do multi-day fasts. So I don't know what the most effective mechanism is in turning in terms of, uh, you know, triggering these cellular repair and longevity pathways. But I would say that, you know, what works for me and a lot of other people is trying to eat within an eight or maybe a nine hour period and fasting the rest of the time. In the Latino household, I can tell you eating has always been a struggle. Traditionally, as we were growing up, I feel like we've made strides in that area because we are mindful now about the kind of foods we buy, what type of foods we're cooking, the type of ingredients that we're using. So I think that there are some positives around that. But when you look at the exercise piece that's really connected to your other piece of your um, tripod, you know, they're about 28% or or less of Americans who are activating, you know, this prevention of going to the gym and that they're using this membership wisely. So when you think about sleep, the way you've mentioned, and now maybe the nutrition side of it a bit, now we're talking exercise. We look at Americans and people, we are exercising more, but it doesn't appear that we're doing it with the high frequency. A lot of people said that they move around. What are things that people can do if they cannot get to the gym? Or what are ways to get this revved up? Because I know the, the beginning of the year is a good time to kind of start this out. 
But, you know, we won't look at that. Let's say I'm ready now. What are we trying to do? Sure. Great question. Well, you know, just on the nutrition thing, we talked a little bit about when to eat and intermittent fasting. We talked obviously for days about what to eat. So if we have time and you want to get back to that, I'd, I'd be happy to discuss my undergraduate degree in nutritional science. And that's been a huge part of my practice in the intensive care unit, where unfortunately we tend to starve our, our patients. But as far as exercise, you know, there's three, three types of exercise or three intention domains, I guess, for exercise that we should try to fulfill. One of them is what we call, you used to call aerobic exercise or cardio. And so that involves, that could just involve brisk walking. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Peter Atia is a, a great, he's a physician who's got uh, a very successful podcast and he talks about zone two when it comes to cardio or aerobic exercise. And that's where you're just short enough of breath that you can't really speak comfortably in full sentences. It would be uh, like, yes, dear, I'll yeah. take out the trash after dinner. Mm -hmm. So when you're in that mode, so you can achieve that just by brisk walking, right? Walk your dog, go go for a brisk walk for five minutes or 10 minutes when you're working at your desk at home. Uh, it'll increase your productivity coming back to your desk. So, you know, the more the better up to a point. But yes, I mean, some is better than none. So there's that cardio exercise. And then there's resistance training, you know, or training with weights. You don't need weights. You can do it with bands. You can do it with body weight. But that uh, resistance training, let's say, which can be weight training, but not necessarily, has so many important effects on our bodies, especially in postmenopausal women who tend to get very thin bones or, uh, you know, osteopenia uh, and, you know, are prone to, to fractures and so on. So it turns out that when you contract your muscles and they're pulling on those bones, it causes the bones to lay down more calcium and, and get thicker and stronger. But uh, resistance training has other benefits as well. And it really is something we should all do. You know, most people don't realize are, you know, left to the body's own devices without a plan. Our musculature peaks in our 20s and we lose about 10% of our muscle mass every decade after that. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you peak when you're 25 or so and by the time you're 75, unless you have a plan and you're working on it, on, on building your muscles or keeping them in shape, you may have lost half your muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And that has a whole bunch of adverse physiologic effects. So we need cardio, we need resistance training. And the other thing we need, especially as we get older, is uh, core strength and balance. Because one of the major causes of what we call morbidity and mortality or uh, unwellness and, and death are falls in people once they're over the age of about 65. People don't realize this, but I can say even at my age, I noticed that my balance is not as good as it used to be. And I, I need to work more on that. I tend to focus on my cardio and, and resistance training and, and my core, but not enough on my balance. But when our balance is suffering, you know, and you can imagine we, most of us have a older relative that fell and broke their hip or, or something similar to that. They went in the hospital at the age of 78 or what have you and had general anesthesia and had surgery and, and were never quite the same after that. And, 
you know, that's a very common scenario. So falls are a major cause of, of unwellness and death in older people, not even that old, but even in, the, you know, 60s and 70s. So those are the three areas we should focus on, the cardio, the resistance, and the core and balance. And there's different ways to do that, but you do have to be a little bit organized and, you know, intentional about it, right? We have to have, we have to have a plan and it takes a little bit of, dedication to that plan in order to uh to work it out it doesn't have to be going to the gym four times a week a lot of the stuff we can do just by doing brisk walking uh dancing other things you know things that are fun tennis uh, basketball etc and then using even our own body weight or i think you know uh these stretchy bands are kind of fun and and readily available and inexpensive I mean, there's so many ways to get creative. I work with a lot of clients when I put them on the uh, he's just plans and we start working around what are things that we're able to do. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Gain Without Pain, a smash. I personally purchased the book and began to read the very beginning early on. You dropped bombs, just a lot of information that's very useful. There's one intriguing piece here. Let's get into this wellness, into this mindfulness. There's a math equation, if you will. Suffering equals pain times resistance. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. You know, I, there's ways that our brains are wired, and we could talk about why they're wired that way, but we're all wired this way. Uh, it's not our dirty little secret that we tend to be negative and a little bit depressed, right? We all have a negativity bias. And we all have a distraction in ways that are unhealthy or maladaptive with the past and the future. It's hard for us to be present. If we close our eyes and just try to think about what's happening right this moment, it's difficult, right? Our minds after a few seconds will go to a list of things we have to do or something we did or didn't do earlier in the day or yesterday that we're embarrassed about. So when you combine that obsession with the past and future with our negativity bias, when it comes to the past, you get depression. <clears throat> and we all have this. We all have negativity. We, you know, this leads to shame, regret, low self-esteem, the imposter syndrome, and depression. And then with regard to the future, we obsess and with our negativity bias, we think about the worst things that can happen. We generate a lot of fear and anxiety. So again, we talk about the iron gainer intention. We have to have a plan if we want to rewire our brains, right? Mm -hmm. So what is that plan? Well, the gain practice is just a three-minute practice. Set your alarm three minutes early when you go to bed. You know, if you're getting up at 7, get up at 6.57, go to sleep three minutes earlier. Set your intention the night before. Wake up in the blinds, do our morning hygiene thing, and then just sit in a comfortable place hopefully in a quiet place, close our eyes. We spend some time focusing on, our, on slowing and deepening our breath. And then we go through a self-guided contemplative meditation over these four elements gain, gratitude, acceptance, intention, non-judgment. And then we return our focus to the breath. Now you mentioned the equation, suffering equals pain times resistance. So these gain elements, by the way, just like sleep, exercise, and nutrition are very interwoven right? They're very interdependent. But that equation, I think, is in the chapter on acceptance. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Suffering equals pain times resistance. So resistance is the inverse of acceptance, right? So when we resist things that are uncomfortable, you know, painful experiences, I talk in the beginning of the book about the death of my dear boy at the age of 29, that's a pain that's not going to go away. But if I resist it, if I try never to think about it and never to cope with it and, and you know, blaming myself, if whatever, I could have done this, could have, those are all forms of resistance. Mm-hmm. And the more I resist when it comes to those thoughts and, and the experience they, they elicit, the more I suffer. On the other hand, if I can just learn how to accept what happened, what is that I can't change, as the serenity prayer would have it, right? We need to discern between what we can change and what we can't change and accept what we can't change. And there's method for doing that in the gain meditation. If we can really just bring this experience into our heart and sit with it and relax into it and breathe with it, can eventually begin to accept it. And again, you know, rather than resist it, which increases our suffering, if we fully accept, then our suffering goes away. I kind of picture um, Jesus Christ on the cross with stakes in his hands and feet, his wrists and ankles, and how much pain he must have had, physical pain. But at least my imagery is that he fully accepted the pain. And so he wasn't suffering at the at that time. Now, I could be wrong about that. I'm sure that biblical scholars will argue with me, but The point is that accepting that which we can't change, which we find uncomfortable or even painful, diminishes our suffering. You know, you said a lot there, Dr. Hammer, and let's just unpack that a bit. When we think about your journey to do this work, and when I looked upon and understood a little bit how you incorporated the GAIN model, many of us run into these great ideas just like the way that you did. It was easier for you to remember this than these 10 or 12 steps. I'm not going to remember all these steps. I see this as gain. And we're going to tap into that a little bit further. But looking at that piece from the perspective of we are wired to always think about the negative. It's, It's just part of how we do things. Many people function that way. Um, When you have these jobs and sales and you're mandated to go out and get a quota and you shared about how in your profession is also when we talk about burnout a little bit later, you know, you shared a little bit about Max. And when I was able to read that piece, I had not known that about you um, until I saw that. But I just had this warmth and level of respect of how you were able to deal and try to bounce back because as you mentioned when we lose someone who is so close to us it's very difficult i've dealt with grief just recently the loss of my mom and i think that there's no way you can overcome that no one can replace that but if you can share a little bit about where you were because i think when i got to read that piece i won't do it justice i'll probably have you tell us a little bit about that time because you love your son so much but now you're out here doing this work for him. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, you know, when we talk about acceptance and resistance, increasing our suffering, it's probably no better example than the idea of death, right? 
most of us, when we think about death, whether it's somebody we love who's close to us, who's dying or has died, or our own ultimate mortality, right? We're finite, apparently finite beating, beings. <clears throat> Excuse me. We put it out of our minds, right? We resist those thoughts, right? I could tell you that told you a little bit about when I was a pediatric resident and then an anesthesia resident, and then I did additional training uh, in pediatric anesthesia and critical care. When I decided to go into cardiac intensive care, I knew I was going to be dealing with a lot of death and dying. Hmm. And, you know, people said, well, you can't get too close to your patients because it'll just break your heart. And I thought, no, that just doesn't resonate with me. I want to be there for my patients. I want to be, you know, integrally associated and loving the, the child and their family and be present for them. I don't want to pull back and kind of maintain my distance. That just doesn't sound right to me. That's not the kind of doctor I want to be. So at that point in my life, I just decided I'm going to learn how not to resist these feelings about death. And I'm going to learn how to open my heart and really begin to accept what it means to die. You know, mm -hmm. my patient's death, my people in my family, my friends, and myself. So I spent a lot of time working on this. Um, and so fast forward, you know, and so I've had a career where I've, you know, I've lost a lot of patients, unfortunately. You know, most of them had sort of hopeless congenital heart defects or, or other issues that, you know, were just not things that could be solved with, you know, medically. Mm -hmm. But when my son died, you know, I, uh, all of that work came into focus and without even articulating it to myself as such, I just realized that, you know, I'm right behind you, Max, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right behind you, my love. Um, and that's just, it's just an intrinsic part of our existence. And so I think the fact that I had really thought about it so long and worked so hard on acceptance really helped me more than I can describe. You know, that tugs at the heartstrings for sure, because just understanding how close of a relationship we have with our family members, albeit our son, just thank you for, for you know, sharing that so that we can understand, because on this platform, we often talk about the ordinary people, but here is an ordinary person who's doing great things, who is spreading his meditation techniques, who is using his skill set to kind of provide, but he's also human. He's not an expert in this area. It's not something he's like, well, you know, because he knows he's not going to feel that way, but no, he is going to hurt. He is going to suffer, but I definitely commend you and everyone who steps out, probably even myself to that realm that we lose someone who's very close to us and we continue to push the work. So thank you for, for like doing that. Can you tell us some of the strategies that you want our listeners and readers to get from your book when they do get a chance to uh, purchase it? What do you want them to get out of your book? Well, what I want people to know is, first of all, as we've discussed, you know, we're all wired the same way. And, you know, we all have a negativity bias. I've read that 80% of our thoughts are negative and 20% are positive. Um, we get out of bed in the morning and if we have an ache or pain, we tend to dwell on it. And, uh, you know, we tend to forget about 
the miracle that are is you know the the multiple miracles that are ongoing in our body in terms of things that are working well but we focus on that one thing that is temporarily um not to our liking so we all have this negativity bias so i, I would really like people to know that nobody is alone in this right you know we all feel like this is our dirty little secret if if my friends and my coworkers and others knew that i had these dark thoughts they wouldn't want to be my friend they wouldn't respect me and this is the source of something called the imposter syndrome where even many very successful celebrity types um yeah. feel like they're just kind of faking it you know these are you know people who are very successful in film as actors and directors authors academics you name it we all have this so the first thing is you're not alone we're all in this together we're all wired the same way and um you know we need to have empathy for others and ourselves and learn how to drop the judgment the self judgment that's the end and gain is non judgment again these are all tightly interwoven ideas so that's the first thing we all have this negativity bias and then our brains have this amazing quality called neuroplasticity we can actually rewire our brains and rewire the way we think to be more positive and more present because when we're present we're happy and that's the one thing that all now almost 8 billion of us want is just happiness mm -hmm. so the the good news is if we have a daily practice we can actually rewire our neuroplastic brains to become less negative more positive less distracted more present and happier mm -hmm. so there is it's not just hope there's a very clear path forward for all of us if we decide that that's what we want to do when you reference the happiness i remember these little parts and bits of the book that when i was looking at it over you know happiness you broke it down nicely into so many areas that happiness can be you know looked at we only look at happy as smiling but you talked about referencing let's change our mindset and when we're going to rewire ourselves simply trying to smile and i find myself in the school day i have to laugh all day because these kids are incredible you walk in no matter what type of mood you're in it's like having pets right everyone's always happy the pet is always happy to see you and these kids they run up you know sometimes we got handshakes sometimes we do dances together but it's that sort of happiness that i think about that brings me to do this work because i think that a lot of what we're trying to accomplish when we're trying to make someone else happy is that is rubbing off on us and that's what i loved about your piece there when we're looking at that um gratitude when we looked at acceptance and that being the other part of it help us understand a little bit more about that because when i looked at it i said i am going to accept that i have the job that i have or that i have the profession that i have i'm going to accept that my health but there are things that you can do to improve your acceptance are there ways that you can streamline when things aren't going your way to kind of nudge your acceptance to feel a little bit better and if so what are they well you know as i said the the gain elements are all very closely interwoven so when you're feeling something uncomfortable or painful 
you know, with the game practice, the first thing is it starts with the breath, the slow, intentional, deep inhalation through the nose, the pausing to a count of three, the slow exhale to a count of four. That slow, deep belly breathing in through the nose actually activates the vagus nerve, the parasympathetic nervous system, and that slows our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure, our blood sugar. So that's a start. Just that easily accessible practice. You know, I think sometimes we have stress in our muscles in our chest and our abdomen our diaphragm we don't take a deep breath all day mm -hmm. so just if you're feeling like something is uncomfortable or painful first of all just go to your breath that that activates your parasympathetic nervous system which is a de-stressing part of your nervous system and then you know go to game think about something for which you're grateful so like i'm really bummed out let's say that i blew out my knee this is just a hypothetical and you know, I tore a bunch of cartilage in my knee and I'm all bummed out about that. And it's really causing me pain. I can't go skiing. I'm just depressed. Well, you know, think about all the other parts of your body that are working beautifully. You know, you have a healthy heart, lungs, brain, um, you know, so many things going for you. Be grateful for what you have. And that will automatically put into perspective what's bothering you, what you find painful. You know, I lost my son. Pain's not going away, but let me shift to gratitude for my daughter, for mm -hmm. my brother, my sister, my cousin, who's like a brother to me, all these lovely people in my life. I'm absolutely blessed. So go to the breath again, you know, as part of your practice, go to gratitude, refocus on your intention, go to non-judgment, because I think this is, you know, these are also intrinsically important. As part of that resistance and inability to accept is self-judgment. You know, we start to feel bad about something and then we start to feel bad about ourselves. And, the, you know, in the book, there are tools for how we can begin to learn how to drop the judgments of others, of the world and ourselves. So I think those are all key elements to the practice of dealing with these painful experiences and thoughts. You know, big up to you once again. What I liked about this model is that you spell gain, right? G-A-I-N, and I'm going to break it down so people can understand what the model is. We look at the power of gratitude, the power of acceptance, the power of intention, and the power of non-judgment. But what I found that was very interesting, and I love to meditate and think about wellness myself, and I tried to do these things, I tried the gain method the proper way. What I found that sometimes starting out from the non-judgmental, if you just had a situation and you referenced there was a time you were going to go see a patient who you just cared for and the mother reeked like cigarettes, and immediately... Your, your first thought was like, oh, my God, this lady's a bad parent. You know, it's just a normal way of us looking at things. But I love that your model is so inviting that you're able to interlock and say, hey, I'm going to start from this non-judgmental piece. And then I'm going to go and then I'm going to go to the gratitude and then work my way down. That's what I most enjoyed about that. Can you tell us more if there's a specific order is it relative in any specific way? Because I did not think. I thought it was so friendly. And you know that I'll be using it, you know, soon. But to help people <laughs> in their own way to gain. Are there ways that we should be thinking about this in a specific order? Or does that matter? 
Uh, it doesn't really matter, you know, but uh, I guess we talk about the the utility of, of acronyms, right? You know, because I have a hard time remembering things. And as they said in the book, you know, I love Deepak Chopra, but I just can't remember the seven steps of this or the 10 ways of that, you know? So that was a problem when I studied PISM as an undergraduate. I just, you know, couldn't remember the Sanskrit words and there were too many things to remember. I tried to get it down to what I think are the essence of happiness and, and, and wellness. And I came up with those four elements of gain. And then I just tried to make an acronym. And the, the G-A-I-N is the only way I could make a word that I'll remember out of those four domains. So uh, that's the reason that they're in that order. It doesn't really matter. But I think, you know, the, the, the point is we learn by association. So if you have this three-minute daily practice, preferably in the morning, before you go about the other activities of your day and you start with the breath, just feels so good to sit and breathe deeply into our belly slowly. And then you go through a contemplation of that for which you're grateful. That next for which you find uncomfortable and you, there's an exercise for again, bringing this into your heart and sitting with it. And again, linking it to the breath, breathing into it. And then going to intention and first focusing on what are your physical experiences right now? The pressure of the chair against your body, maybe hearing a, an airplane or a car going by in the distance, focusing on your present experience. And then what is it that you're committed to in life? You know, kindness, compassion, et cetera. Then transitioning to non-judgment. And I have a visual imagery for that. And then going back to the breath. When you do them in the same order every day, you can go to any of them and you invoke the others automatically. I just find that simpler to, it's not just remember, it's almost like an unconscious, subconscious response. So I'm walking down the hall, I'm going to go to a meeting with my boss. I can tell that my acute stress responses are being activated. My heart rate's going up a little bit. I'm feeling a little sweaty I'm feeling anxious. So I just initiate a slow, deep breath as I'm walking. And by activating the parasympathetic nervous system, it slows down those acute stress responses. But it also just kind of bathes me in these gain elements also, because I've had this practice for a while. They're all linked together. So when I, I think of my breath and I go to my breath, the other gain elements just come along with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm driving my car. I get a little aggravated. Somebody's changing lanes ahead of me without using their turn signal. Not that that ever happens in California. <laughs> and I start to judge the driver. And then a light bulb goes off. I just, you know, did my non-judgment exercise. So I, I laugh at myself. I let go of the judgment. I get a little hit of dopamine instead of a little hit of adrenaline, mm -hmm. right? And these other elements come to me at the same time. So I think if you just do it kind of like the same way, you know, like... I don't know, it's a silly example, but like when you are brushing your teeth, you know, a lot of times people do it the same. They do their upper right, their upper left, their lower, whatever. You know, you just want to make sure you don't skip anything. So, you know, just these little practices that we do where we don't want to forget anything. And, you know, in medicine, we have tons of acronyms. If you came on rounds in the intensive care unit with us, probably wouldn't understand a word we're saying, not because they're medical jargon, but because everything is an acronym. Um, and so I, th I think there's some utility to that. It, it just does make it easier to, to remember and bring all these domains, you know, to four. No, I thought it, 
And I know that it is brilliant because I've seen you do it on the spot. You were on a news telecast. They had you do it on the spot. It was like, oh, okay, so let's get it. But I've also practiced it myself and being able to be intentional, following the gratitude, you know, being happy, finding these three things. Because a lot of times we're a slow starter. Some of us, oh, my God, today is going to be a long day. You can foresee, you know, that some of us even plan, you know what I'm doing November? Like we're in January. We're already talking about what I'm doing on November 8th. So there are many times that we put pressures on ourselves without wanting to. And without needing to, I think the day by day approach is something that I love, but I also love the systematic approach of finding gratitude at that top. So if like it is just beautiful. And thank you for, you know, sharing this with the world. Are there any clients? And I know that you have many that have touched your heart. Are there any clients or stories that you can remember that say to you, Dr. Hammer, this is one of the reasons I'm not going to give up on this work. Can you think of any of those? You know, I have to tell you what you just said is more than sufficient for me. Hmm. You know, I'm talking to somebody like you who's expressing your thanks to me. And, you know, who am I? I'm just a, you know, a dude. Uh, that's enough for me because I know there's other people listening. If I can, you know, if I can help reshape or, you know, redirect one person in a more positive direction, um, that's enough for me. Mm. Well said, Dr. Hammer. Are there ways that we can incorporate, and we've talked about the book, there's some interviews, there's different things. Are there any strategies aside from gain that our listeners can get from your book without giving out too much? Well, you know, the, the last three chapters that you haven't read yet are on sleep, exercise, and nutrition. So, uh, you know, I think there's our, our physical health and our and our mental and spiritual health. And those, of course, are also very closely interrelated. So uh, beside the game practice, I would really, you know, stress uh, really having uh, an intention, not just a New Year's resolution and a long term plan, but a purpose for today about what I'm going to do to improve my sleep, um, how I can get some exercise and you know, how I can focus on what and when I eat. And so I think if you can really not, you're not going to be perfect, but just do a little better today with regard to our sleep, exercise, and nutrition, and then our gratitude, acceptance, intention, non-judgement, you've got about, you've got it about as dialed in as it gets. And, and again, you know, we were, made this way and evolved this way over a very long period of time. We're not going to change all these things 180 degrees overnight. But if we're moving in the right direction, you know, I think that goodness begets goodness. And, you know, we, we start to get on the right track. And, and, and that is in and of itself sufficient. So beyond that, I don't think I have any more advice uh, in the limited time we have. Next time, maybe we can do a gain meditation together. We definitely can. Before we let you go, the floor is yours. Is there anything you want to enlighten our listeners with to remember about you? Thank you so much for being with us. Tell us anything that you want us to remember about you, Dr. Hammer. Well, you know, honestly, with due respect, it's really not about me. Um, you know, I, the thing I often say in closing, I've already said, but I'll say it again, and that is 
you know, for those of us who have a tendency to be negative, kind of down, very self-judgmental, I just want people to know who are listening that we're all wired this way. We all have this negativity bias. You are not alone. And you can, if you decide that you're worth it and you are, to rewire your brain, baby steps, a little bit at a time. So this is just, it's not your dirty little secret. This is something that we all are afflicted with in a way. And, and there's absolutely something that you can do about it when you decide to really have the intention to do so. Well, let's listen up, friends. Rewire your brain. And just as we do, there's a quote that I wrote myself. In the face of adversity, let grace be your guiding light amid the challenges. Embrace authenticity, smile with a purpose, radiate love, no matter the internal or external factors. Play harder than all the rest. Because on this platform, we never give up. And here, we often were overlooked and labeled, but this is no longer. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in, friends, to another He's Just a Social Worker show coming to another town real soon near you. We out. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa. This is dedicated to you, mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde de la Rosa, esto va dedicado a ti, mamá. Te extraño mucho.